Well, people, I think we are here. We, we're, it's actually happening as we speak. The transition is happening. The 50th episode of For What It's Worth. 50. Yes, I do these for no other reason than I love audio and I love recording. Now, I'm going to get to my tech woes in a second, but this week the tech, some of the tech woes uh, are basically tied to my audio recorder. But that's another story. We'll get there. The inauguration is happening as we speak. Um, the douche has finally left the White House. I don't think there's a better word to describe him. Um, the behavior over the past couple of weeks, pretty not, not surprising. Um, what's really comical to me is watching him turn on the Republicans who are just still taking a beating from the guy. So I think ultimately we have to hope that the Republicans restructure, they get rid of some of the bad apples in there and come back a stronger, better, more centrist party. I think that that would be great. I don't think that the Trumpism, not only did it not help the Republican party, it basically blew it apart. So they are to blame. Uh, and I'll get to some of the enablers here in a minute, but it was pretty astounding who he surrounded himself with. And we have to remember that this is not about Trump. This is about an entire wider movement. So I'll get to that in a minute, but let's talk a little bit about, uh, what else is going on here? Oh, I'm a, I'm a bit, I'm, I'm literally kind of shaking about this. Um, Zoe in Sydney sent this, this, the designs for the second issue of AG 23, that email landed this morning. I've got to jump in the van and head over to some high-speed Wi-Fi here in a little while. I've got more phone calls today, more blurb calls, and uh, I've got to download the designs, and we start doing the, uh, the edit on the first round. There's some corrections we have to make. There's a file I have to replace. Somebody's One of the files I sent got corrupted somehow, so I need to replace that. You know, the typical thing that happens when you go through the first revision and then the second revision, uh, et cetera, but that came this morning. That's pretty fantastic. So uh, let's get started here. Who's this for? Uh, it, this is for anyone who still wears parachute pants. If you have a fond memory of parachute pants like I do, and you're still wearing them today in 2021, then good on you. Welcome to the podcast. This is designed specifically for you. Anyone who will cling to a bad idea for 30 years is okay in my book. Now, let me tell you my experience with parachute pants. I discovered parachute pants because there was a kid in my middle school class named Bobby, and Bobby was cool. He was a drummer, and he wore parachute pants, and Bobby's parachute pants. Now, let me, let me back up here a second. Bobby was not considered a cool kid. He was like a fringe kid, but Bobby could play drums, and that's what, that's what allowed him to dip a toe in the world of cool. He was not the rich kid. He was not the the preppy, he was not the jock, he was not the popular kid, but he was cool because he always had drumsticks. And Bobby had parachute pants, skin-tight parachute pants. I mean, it was like a roadmap, his pants. And so Bobby was in, we, had, we shared a class together. And I remember the class for a couple of reasons. I went to a very violent middle school. Uh, there were gangs, there were teachers that were beaten up right in front of me. My science teacher got dragged down the pavement after school and beaten to a pulp by a kid who was way too old to be going to middle school. He'd been held back like 35 times. I saw gang fights in the middle of school in the middle of day. I saw tons of drug deals. The cartels were using these schools as distribution hubs for, for the, this part of the state. That, that also happened in my high school. Um, when you came to school, your head was on a swivel because you didn't know who was coming and where they were coming from. So the school was surrounded by these massive metal gates that were like 20 feet high. And when these gates would open, it was basically like going to prison. 
the gates would open and you would enter and they would close them behind you. And my locker happened to be right, the first row of lockers inside the metal gates. So if and when something went down in that corridor, you were trapped. You either had to climb to the top of the lockers or climb the fence. And this happened again and again because the fights were happening all the time. And so it paid to, uh, to, be, to have two skills. It paid to know how to fight, and it paid to know how to be the Uni United Nations of middle school students, which was extending an olive branch to all groups in case you needed backup. You know, you didn't want to be, you didn't want to identify with one particular party because then you might get isolated and basically extinguished. So anyway, I had this class with Bobby. The teacher asked us to go to her car one day to get something out of her car in the teacher's parking lot. And she had like a six foot glass bong in the back seat of her car. And she would break down in crying fits in the middle of class. And kids were doing rush in class, during class. And rush is like ether, I think. And so they came in these little glass vials and you would, you'd see a kid in the back of the room bend over, plug one nostril, inhale this massive hit of rush, and then their face and head would turn bright red. And they would like borderline almost pass out. This was happening during class. But let me get back to Bobby. I was like, man, Bobby seems like a cool kid. He plays the drums. And this, and the, the girls, even the girls, and I'm saying girls, not women yet, because middle school, girls that were cool girls, that were, that were preppy girls, that were jock girls, they liked Bobby too, because Bobby was kind of the bad boy, because he was a drummer. And anyway, I saw Bobby had parachute pants, and I'm like, I'm going to get parachute pants. And so I got parachute pants too. The only problem was that my pants were like three sizes too big. So they were not only skin tight, they looked like rodeo clown pants. They, they were baggy, and they would have literally potentially worked as a parachute if I had needed that. But I was yet into skydiving, and I'm still not and never will be. So I had baggy parachute pants, and then at the time, IZOD shirts were all the rage. So I wanted to blend in. I had one of those. And this is camouflage. Like, I'm looking for an outfit that is going to keep me alive when, when the wolves come at some point in time at the middle school. So I had a khaki, an Izod shirt with the, with the collar up. You had to, always had to have the collar up. And then I had these enormous white Avia high tops, which were just god-awful. They looked like the pants, the, the shoes that your grandparents wear right before they die. You know, those giant white, like padded keds kind of things that old people tend to gravitate to because their bodies have broken down to the po point where they're like, I just need something with padding. That's what I had. So I, I should have been, rightly so, I should have been a target. But for some reason, I dodged most of the incoming fire in middle school. Now, the other part that I'll share before we move on is that where we ate lunch there was so much violence in the school that when you left, when you went into, stood in the cafeteria line, uh, you got your food, your tray, and then you went outside, and there was a chain link cage. So imagine about 30 feet high, four walls of chain link, and then the roof was chain linked over, and there was one door in and one door out. So everyone went in, and they locked the door because they knew there were going to be a bloodbath at some point during lunch, and when they when bloodbath occurred, they would just pinpoint kids from the outside as we climbed the chain link to get away from the craziness down below. And they would then single out the kids and send them, you know, they'd send security in and rip these kids out. So it was awesome. I also have a great little story about my father. I got suspended once for doing something I didn't actually do. And so I came home and I was like bummed. I was like, okay, three days of, 
of detention and my dad comes in. My dad was very much a disciplinarian. His parents were terrible to him and they were very disciplinarian and they sent him to military school and he had a terrible relationship with his parents. They were cruel. And so my dad comes in and he just looks at me and he goes, I'm going to ask you one thing. I'm going to ask you one question. And I was like, shoot, buddy, no problem. I got three days vacation. He goes, did you do it? I said, no. He goes, get in the car. So what, what, wait, I missed, I missed a step here. He said, did you do it? And I said, no. And he goes, well, you got three days to think about it. And I go, I'm not worried about the three days vacation. I'm worried about the licks. And he goes, what are you talking about? And I go, they're going to give me licks. And for those of you who don't know about school in Texas, I don't know if they're still doing this, but punishment was bending you over a table and hitting you with a wooden rod that was wrapped in leather. It's like, imagine again, again, I'm going to go back to the prison reference. So they bent you over a table and the vice principal took a wooden rod wrapped in leather and wailed on you as hard as he could three times. And so kids would wear like 14 pairs of underwear to try to protect themselves from licks. And I was like, I don't want to get licks. And my dad's like, what are you talking about? And he goes, get in the car. And I was like, what? So we get in the car, we drive down there. My dad goes into the VP's office, past the secretary, who's like, sir, sir, you can't go in there. And my dad leans over the desk and goes, you touch him, I come back and touch you. And suddenly, my licks and suspension disappeared. It was kind of a miracle. And I was like, dad, way to go, man. First and only time I ever saw my dad do anything like that. He was not a violent dude at all, not a fighter. But he was like, he was looking out for me. Because if I had said to him, I did it, I would have gotten the licks, but I didn't do it. So I just happened to be in a line of people who were doing something, and I was at the end trying to get around him, and I couldn't. And the, this guy jumped out, security guy, and he's like, okay, everybody in this line. You know, this has happened to me a bunch of times in my life, actually. Getting pulled over in a car once in the line of like 10 other cars. None of us did what the cops said we did, and they were just trying to make some cash and, you know, shaking people down. That's happened a few times, again, in Texas. Okay, so anyone, parachute pants, that's who this is for. My hero of this week... And I finally just listened to this call. The hero of the week are the Georgia governor and attorney general. Now, this could have come a few weeks ago. These are the two guys, the unfortunate dudes, who, by the way, are lifelong Republicans who both voted for Trump, who were the ones on the opposite end of Trump's extortion call. Now, like I said, I didn't listen to this call originally. I just heard it. The fact that he didn't get impeached for this call is just another example. I think he could have easily been impeached about once a month for his entire four years because he just was such a bumbling fool in terms of how he tried to do this stuff. He sounded like Tony Soprano without there being a threat behind it. You know, it's like, you better find me these votes. And oh, by the way, this could be very dangerous for you. And you could tell, you know, everyone knows he's making threats. He, he could have and should have been impeached for that call. Uh, again, he could have easily been impeached three times at a minimum. And so the Georgia governor and attorney general, who are part of the Republican Party, who voted for this bozo to begin with, are sitting there taking this verbal beating from a buffoon. And they just keep saying, uh, no, that's not accurate. Uh, no, that's not uh, the results that we found. Uh, no, that's not. You know, they're having to tell the president of the United States this stuff. I Was I shocked when I heard the call? No. Was I depressed a, a bit of like, this is the, the clown. Now, remember, not to blow my own horn, 2016, I said, if we elect him, we deserve everything that happens because you could see this coming from outer space. So anyway, he's gone. Those two guys took a beating and just said, look, we're not going to roll over to this guy. I think maybe if he would have been slicker, 
and had a better tact, he could have gotten people to roll over even more. I mean, let's face it, 100 people in the Congress still voted to turn over the election. So we are a ship adrift in some ways. Okay, now the scum of the week. And again, scum, I could say goat of the week, but scum is a direct tip of the hat to Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter, yeah, Hunter Thompson, Dr. Hunter Thompson. Gonzo Journalism founder, if you will. And uh, anyway, he was a was a masterful user of the term scum, and he which he directed a lot at Richard Nixon. And so scum to me is pretty interesting. Now scum this week, I don't have any particular names. It's a group of people, and it doesn't have to be from one particular incident. One particular incident is jumping out as to what happened on, the, on, on January 6th. But if you are going to storm a Capitol building, and film yourself at the same time putting it on social media and bragging that you're doing it, then you can't turn around and try to hide after the fact once you're busted. I, I just want one of these blowhards to own what they did and go, yeah, I did it. I was there. Great. Arrest me. Go ahead. Throw the book at me. I was there. I'm standing up. No, what they do is they, they throw away their cell phone. They turn off their social media accounts. They beg for pardons. It's the most pathetic response I've ever seen. So if you're one of those people who is not smart enough to understand that social media is a public thing, if you put yourself on social and bragged about being in the Capitol wearing your tactical gear for some unknown reason, and then you decided, uh-oh, I guess that was illegal— and instead of owning it and saying, yeah, I was there, you decide to try to hide. By the way, the digital fingerprint, it doesn't go away. It's out there. It's very easy to bring that stuff back. There is no point in trying to throw away your cell phone or turn off your social media accounts. Where this gets interesting now, and I'm, I'm sure this will probably get lost in the shuffle, but apparently three of the Trump administration people paid for the permits for that rally. Here's where we get a little interesting, and I would love for you lawyer types out there if you have any data on this, that seems to me like a very difficult thing to get away from. Legally, if your administration paid for the permits, and by the way, all the people that paid turned off their social media accounts and have since tried to flee from the fact that they were the ones behind that, that seems to me a legally binding thing that could be a real problem for administration folks. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. It just seems like that's kind of a, a, a paper trail that is not encouraging if you are one of the people whose name is on that permit. So anyway, okay, hey, tech woes this week. Before we move on to the points, the tech woes of the week is I have a brand new 10-year-old Macintosh Pro trash can Mac, the black one, the blurb sent me. Now, it doesn't have any of the modern ports on it. It has all the you know USB and the HDMI and something else. Uh, like mini DVI ports, and there's a ton of them. I mean, I only have one device that uses that, and there's six of them, six ports on the back of this thing. So I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Two Ethernets, which I don't use. The problem I have is I don't have a second monitor. So to use this Mac, I would have to unplug the monitor from my laptop, which I'm using all day every day, and then plug it into this. So I've got to get a second monitor before I can even use this thing. If you have any suggestions of what monitor I can get, please let me know. And again, remember, it does have HDMI, so it's not like it's that ancient where it doesn't have, you know, it has like some Thunderbolt port or something, um, but this has HDMI. Let me know. I don't know anything about monitors. Blurb sent me an LG, which I've had for years. It's the one sitting in front of me right now. 
And I don't want to take it away from the laptop because the laptop to me as a standalone device is kind of useless because of the keyboard. The keyboard is so bad. And once you're used to looking at a 30 inch screen to go back to a laptop screen, it's kind of cruel and unusual. So that's tech woes. The other tech woe that's happening, which is pretty interesting, is the audio recorder that I'm using, which is a Zoom uh, H6, which is great. To, to reformat the memory card inside requires you to hit this little button on the side and then toggle to the, uh, to the, to the format tab. But the toggle now, the format option is, is the middle option of three on that little screen. And when you hit the toggle button, it jumps from number one to number three. It won't go to number two. So you can't get it to reformat the card. It's, and I've tried and you have to, you know, it takes about 30 or 40 tries and you have to like stand on one leg and you have to breathe, right? You have to hold your breath, blow out two thirds of it and hold it like you're shooting a rifle. And then you basically just tap, tap, tap. Oh, too far, too far up. Not enough, too far, not enough, too far, not enough. And it goes back and forth. And then like 30 minutes later, I can reformat the card. So that's the current tech woe of the week. And I'm sure it's my fault, by the way, I'm not blaming zoom anyway. Okay. Uh, let's move on. We got a bunch of points here this week. I'm not sure how good these are. I don't even remember what they are. I just made these and moved on. I've got a very, very busy week, uh, happening right now. Ooh, yesterday I did new film, which I'm going to release maybe later today. And I did three more blog posts yesterday about, uh, viewers who sent books into me that I sort of did little reviews of that I like. I've got six or seven more of those to do. I've got a bunch of blurred blog posts to do. We've got calls and meetings, and I've got to fill out a bunch of documents for these calls and meetings and stuff. So it's a busy day, and um, I just dashed these points down and took off. So the first one is one of the guys, and, and I'm not—I don't want to dwell on this political stuff, but it's almost impossible to ignore this going on because it's such a peculiar time, if you will. One of the people arrested in the siege of the Capitol was the Otero County Commissioner in New Mexico. And Otero County, he's a county commissioner. He's also, I guess, the founder of Cowboys for Trump. Now, I've seen these guys pulled over on overpasses between Albuquerque and Santa Fe on the interstate, and they park their trailers on the top of the interstate in the middle of the bridge, and it says Cowboys for Trump, and they stand around, and when you drive under, they cheer, which is fine. That's completely, you know, Cowboys for Trump. There is, there is a little slight crack in this. Now, he was, he's in huge trouble. They're not even going to release him before the trial because he, apparently, based on what he said on television, allegedly, he was like, blood's going to flow. We're not going to allow the Biden presidency. We're taking over. I mean, he, everything he said is so damning. They're going to throw away the key with this guy. And he's a county commissioner here in New Mexico, which is not a good sign that he got elected publicly. But that's not why I'm bringing this up. So... Cowboys for Trump. Now, I happen to know a little bit about cowboys because when I was a kid and I was in second or third grade, my father bought a piece of property in Wyoming. And we started living in Wyoming about four months a year, which was during the time, this was back when it snowed a lot. And so there was no way to get in and out of this property in the winter, really, unless you had a snowmobile and you had, you would have to ski do all the way from Laramie. So it was, it would be a long and dangerous trip to do this. And so once winter hit, you were kind of in there and we had to go to school and the schools in Laramie, I have no idea if they were good or bad. So we would fly and live somewhere else for the other, the other part of the year and then do this time in Wyoming. Well, shortly after moving out there, my dad was approached by an old friend who said, um, I want to go in the cattle business and I've got some cows, but I don't have any land. Can I run cows on your property? And so my dad said, sure. And they went into partnership together 
into into a ranch, which is still in existence. My father is no longer in existence, uh, and no, no longer is my family involved in the ranching operation. But it's now exponentially larger, very successful. My dad's ranch partner is a very successful farmer rancher dude. He is also a real cowboy. And when I say real cowboy, when I was a kid, you know, I was reading Louis L'Amour books. And so I, I could not get enough of like Zane Gray, Louis L'Amour, anybody that wrote about the West, good guy, bad guy, gold, Indians, river, water, you know, the same story a hundred times over. I would still read these books today. Love them. So I learned that a real cowboy was not necessarily, didn't look and dress like what I thought a, a cowboy looked like. You know, you started to hear this expression, all hat and no cattle. These guys with lifted pickups and, and you know, cowboy outfits driving around the city going to drive-ins. And, and I realized those aren't actually real cowboys. And so real cowboys to me oftentimes were driving tractors. They were wearing tennis shoes or they were wearing irrigation boots. And the time spent on horseback was really not that much. And sometimes on horseback, you were, you were using, you were basically fixing fence. You could be up in the mountains on a horse with a bunch of barbed wire and tools to fix fence. You weren't moving cows. You weren't roping cows. You weren't doing any of that stuff, doctoring cows. And so cowboys, you know, occasionally I would see my dad's ranch, part, ranch partner in his, in his felt hat and his chaps and boots on a horseback with his slicker tied to the back. And he'd be up in the mountains, you know, doing whatever. But most of the time we were in pickup trucks. We were wearing tennis shoes because we were, you know, picking up rocks or doing whatever the heck we were doing, fixing corrals, all this kind of stuff. So this Otero County commissioner, there's a photo of him on horseback in some parade wearing a leather fringe outfit with fur lining and a fur collar and, I just, and this giant black hat. And I just thought to myself, wait a minute, cowboys for Trump? I have never in my life seen a cowboy dress like that outside of, of Robert Redford and Rhinestone Cowboy. So I don't know who this guy is, but man, it's like, and now they're trying to, the two other commissioners down there in Otero are trying to get him to resign or they're going to recall him. Um, and so it's not a good scene, but to me, it's like the real cowboy thing. I've never in, in my life seen anyone, anyone dress like that. By the way, when we first moved out there, my brother and I went to downtown Laramie I don't remember the name of the store, but we bought cowboy hats. And my brother and I bought what, what you might want to refer to as a bull rider hat, which were these obnoxious, huge straw cowboy hats with feathers in the band. Like, again, no cowboy I ever saw wore anything remotely like this. And I also, at one point in my life out there, ended up with a red silk long sleeve shirt with white fringe. Yes, how I ended up with this shirt, I have no idea. I just remember putting it on as a little kid and being embarrassed immediately. I just knew there was something wrong that no person in the state of Wyoming would have worn a shirt like this, and yet somehow I had one and wore it somewhere. Let's move on. Okay, this Saturday, uh, and I know there's, <clears throat> there's mixed feelings about this out there, about mixed martial arts, MMA, but this weekend there is a big fight between Conor McGregor and Dustin the Diamond Poirier. Now, these guys have fought before, and I'm gonna, let me explain to you why this is an interesting fight to me. So McGregor is considerably the, the biggest name in all of MMA. He's a very small Irishman that came on the scene four, five, six years ago. Um, he was very cocky. He was very brash, but he was very good. And he came in, and he did everything he said he was going to do. He's like, I'm going to knock this guy out in the first round. Bam, knocked him out. I'm going to beat this guy. Bam, beat him. It just accumulated. He sort of peaked 
back in like 2016, 2017, where he beat a guy named Jose Aldo for the, for the featherweight title, the 145-pound title, I want to say. And he knocked him out in 13 seconds. Left hand, boom, Aldo came in, overcommitted on a punch, and, and uh, Connor's a lefty. And his left hand, he's a strike, what's considered a striker, not a grappler, not a wrestler. He's a stand-up striker. His left hand is considered one of the best strikes in all of MMA. Like, he's got power behind it. And that's the weird thing about MMA or fighting in general, boxing or, or MMA. It's a little bit like baseball. I had a friend in middle school who could pitch. Um, I could not pitch. And even playing catch with this guy was terrifying because he, had, he was a little guy. But he had so much power behind his arm. You couldn't explain it. If you lined him in a police lineup with all of us and you looked at us physically, you would never choose him as the guy that had the power. But he had uncanny power in his arm. And I didn't even like playing baseball with him because he could rip a, a ball from, out from the outfield to home plate. And it still hit so hard that you had to really be careful about how you fielded with this guy. McGregor's left hand is the same way. It's a one-punch bye-bye kind of thing. And so McGregor has been uh, through his ups and downs over the past few years. He beat Jose Aldo and then he moved up in weight and became the first two belt owner in the MMA. He beat Eddie Alvarez for the lightweight, the 155 title, and he was a two belt holder. That hadn't happened before. And then he started to unravel. He's a, he's a savvy business dude. So he jumped out of MMA and fought Floyd Mayweather in a boxing thing that was a complete embarrassment for both of them. He made millions and millions and millions of dollars. So I get why he did it. And then he came back to MMA and he got his ass kicked and then came back and beat that guy who beat him up and won. And so, you know, kind of redeemed himself. And he's had some ups and downs. He's had a lot of off, off, out of the, out of the octagon legal troubles and done some really stupid, stupid stuff. But he seems to have really turned it around. And when he, when he's appears to have turned it around, all of MMA is now paying attention, men and women, because they know what he's capable of. And he's a very interesting fighter and does things in the, in the octagon that no one else does. He has fought Poirier before, and Poirier is a kid from Louisiana, and he seems like a really good guy. He's a very, uh, he's an intelligent guy, he speaks well, he's nice, he, he doesn't run his mouth off all the time, and he has, is a true battler. I mean, the guy's been beaten, knocked out, and worked his, clawed his way back. Got knocked out, got beaten, clawed his way back, and, and, and McGregor beat him. First round knockout back, back when they were fighting at 145. Now they're fighting at 155, and these are older guys. And to cut weight like that, if you're walking around at 170, 175, cutting weight to 155 is not easy and it's not healthy. And so that's one of the hardest things about boxing, wrestling, MMA is these weight cuts are really awful. And so they've tried to make it a little safer over the years and tried to keep people from doing really drastic things to drop that weight. But when you see them on the scales and they're just emaciated. So these guys took a risk at jumping down to 155 because they're bigger dudes now. They fought at 170. And so to go down to 155, that gets me excited because these guys, when they're light, are electric in the, in the ring. Now, here's my prediction for those of you who are MMA. If it's in, inside the first two rounds, McGregor will win. If it goes past two rounds, I tip to Poirier because his cardio is better. And he's been in these five-round absolute wars before where you're just like, how is anyone still standing in here? How's the referee still standing? Uh, when Poirier fought um, Justin Gagey, uh, who has the, the most vicious leg kicks I've ever seen of anyone 
And when Poirier took him out in the fifth after enduring leg kicks like you cannot believe, I'm still, in, I'm still hurting from watching, and this was years ago. So anyway, this should be a very interesting fight. I have, I mean, to me, I have no stake in this. I don't bet. I'm not that attached to it. It's just interesting. And I like the smaller guys because they have talent. And they have good cardio, and they can do, you know, they can grapple, they can strike, they can wrestle, they can do all these things. And it's, um, you know, it's kind of an interesting science behind what they're actually doing. So if you haven't seen MMA, this weekend would be a good time to watch the, the title fight, or the, the, the key fight is a McGregor pay-per-view. So check it out. Okay, so moving on to point number three. I left off the first point because it wasn't interesting to me. So it was when I wrote it down, but it's not anymore. This is a point about following. And, and I know I've talked about this in the past, but I need to talk about it again because I, I keep getting emails from people about this. And I have gone on YouTube here over the past year, and I've made some statements. And I stand by pretty much everything I've ever said on YouTube because I'm not trying to con anybody. It's kind of how I feel about things. And I've talked to people about abandoning social media, building a website, and building their own following, a real following of actual people through an email newsletter and having a site that's based on you, not on someone else's algorithm. Because YouTube keeps changing their algorithm. Instagram has done it multiple times. All of these brand, all of these platforms have. They always will. They want more of your blood for less, and they're going to mine you for every ounce of DNA that you possibly have. And we know this now. There is no, this is not a debate. This is exactly what they're doing. If you watched how these platforms handled the Trump administration in that era of hate and white supremacy and blew it over and over and over again, now because Trump is out, they're all trying to backpedal and act like they want to do the right thing. But to build your own following takes what everyone who has been on social media is so fearful of, time. It takes time. And this isn't a game. And you're not conning people. Social media is about conning people. And I know that sounds harsh. And I see this both from a business perspective and from a personal perspective and from a perspective of someone who used to be on it, who isn't now, who can look back with clarity because I have no stake in the social media game. I can look back with clarity and see precisely what it was and what it is. Social media is about conning people into believing you are something most often you're not. And so it's a game. It's a trick. And some people are really good at it. I see it all the time. I see people that are brought to my attention. Hey, have you seen this person? What do you think of this person on social media? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And often the people with the highest numbers are the worst talent, but they know how to build those followings. And they're really good at it because they know how to con people. And so time is what you need. And my, my suggestion is to disconnect and drop out for two years two years, and go learn how to make something good, something unique. Take the time, two years of not sharing, of not talking to people about your work 24-7, about not looking at work online 24-7, about not looking at what an algorithm is telling you to do and say and believe, because otherwise you are not building an actual following of people. You're doing it again. You're conning yourself this time into thinking that what you're doing. So people will come, come to me, how do, if I don't am on social media, how do I get traffic to my site? How do I do that? How do I possibly get traffic? And I'm like, my first question is, why do you think you're good enough to have traffic? What is your work like? If you've been doing nothing but making work that's popular on Instagram, you're not good enough to build a following on your own. 
because people are going it takes more time for and more effort for them to engage with you on your platform that's the reality of this whole thing if you're not creating something that 900 million other people aren't creating you've got to get them to your site and they are going to have to go to a unique site not the same app that's in their hand in their phone all day long every day they have to go to a separate site and they have to take the time to engage if you are not making something good they will not come and they will not stay to figure out what it is to make that's that what you can make that's good it takes time it takes a conversation with yourself in a room with nobody else who am i what do i believe how do those beliefs make me feel you've heard me say this before it's the same thing it's just that everybody is looking for a quick fix and thinking oh i'm going to build my own site and you know i've got 5000 followers on instagram and they're all going to come up no they're not because the, i don't consider those real people that's a thumb that's a thumb and a overloaded brain is what you have and they're flick 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 and those people are going to be like uh-uh i'm not going to a site i'm not taking the time to read anything so it's a long play not a short play and everything about photo and creative now almost everything is short play immediate gain it's um it's the it's the third and one nfl and they have no running back in the backfield and they've got five wide receivers and the you know the quarterback throws a one yard slant and you're like oh stop being so cute and run the ball that's kind of what this is so that's my my advice take two years drop out forget about everyone else and just go off and do your thing and learn learn who you actually are Okay, point number four. I want to talk about, um, this, this was comical to me. There were two things I heard this week that, again, didn't surprise me, but they're just so in line with what you would expect, which is, one, Trump tearing up all the documents. So some, you know, uh, the logs of a meeting tear them up, and the staff has to dig them out of the trash and tape them back together because they're part of the public record of the presidency. So all of these documents, the historical aspect of being president, they want to preserve those, and Trump didn't want anybody knowing anything he's doing because he's involved in so many nefarious things that he's tearing up all the documents and his staff. And the article is hilarious, talking about the staff having to dig these out of the trash and tape them back together. So that was number one. Number two, and this is very telling, the visitor logs at the White House were kept private. Normally, those are public. You can tell who comes and goes from the White House. Trump was like, uh-uh. And again, it speaks to who he is. He was a white-collar criminal for his entire adult life. And he is, you know, took, took that same mentality into the White House and was like, we're not going to tell people who's coming in and out. But I think Trump gets too much of the blame for what was happening over the last four years and what was happening to even put him in a position of power. Because if you go back to the time of him throwing his hat in the ring saying, I want to become president, and you listen to the Ted Cruz's and Lindsey Graham's and Mitch McConnell's and Paul Ryan's and all these people that said, this guy is 100% unfit for office— and then, boom, he gets the nomination, and all of these people become his biggest backers. But just listen to some of these names. Barr, Pompeo, Sessions, Bolton, Zinke, Pruitt, DeVos, Carson, Jr., Ivanka, Jared, Nunes, Jordan, Ryan, Grassley, Graham, McConnell, Cruz. These are the folks, to me, who are the real issue because they enabled him. These guys and these people will wear the scarlet letter for the rest of their lives, and that is the scarlet letter of E for enable. They are the ones that created him meaning Trump, and allowed him to, to do what he did and say what he did because they were the ones that went along with it. So I think we sometimes give Trump too much credit. It's like when people were, oh, I can't believe he's not going to the inauguration. 
you knew that in 2016. If he was, if he lost, he wasn't going to go to an inauguration. He is not capable. That is not within his power because the inauguration is not about him, and he's too inarticulate to actually speak at a, at something like that. He's not going to ad lib at something like an inauguration. If there's no teleprompter, you cannot put him up there because he's incapable of talking about someone else or giving credit or being gracious or, you know, again, last night I was watching a doc about Stuxnet virus and um, they were showing Gorbachev and Reagan when they were signing the nuclear arms agreement and Reagan gets up and is speaking and my wife says, can you imagine Doofus trying to do that? And I was like, no, he would, they would not have been able to do that because he just can't speak. So these are the folks that we have to watch. You know, Barr bailed and has gone dark. Uh, Pompeo, that guy's going to be investigated forever. Sessions has gone dark. Bolton's gone dark. Zinke's dark. Pruitt's dark. DeVos is dark. Carson's dark. Junior and Ivanka, they're going to get investigated. Jared is certainly going to get investigated. Nunes, dark. Jordan, dark. Ryan, dark. Grassley, dark. Graham and McConnell are still out there. And Cruz who they're trying to get um, to resign. He's never going to do that. They're going to try to get rid of him. He's never going to leave. But, you know, these are the folks that you have to watch. And it's just nuts that these folks, of all the people to hitch their wagon to, they chose him, Trump. It's just astounding. I still think the Republicans have a huge opportunity. And if they were intelligent and had somebody at the head of that party who had half a brain, they could turn it around. They could have solidified power for decades if they had, if they had abandoned Trump about a year ago and put a moderate centrist Republican in the middle, somebody who's young, progressive, and said, look, Trump's taking us in the wrong direction. We don't believe in this anymore. He goes against every policy we ever had. Um, he's not the person for us. Here is the person, and put everyone behind him. They would have solidified power forever, and they blew it. So that's my opinion. Okay, I want to ask you this. This is point number five. This is about travel in 2020. So I am scheduled to teach two workshops in Albania in September, two workshops a week apart, so a week free in the middle to recoup and go back to work and then teach another class. And so we tentatively agreed to sort of announce these things at some point here in the near future and tentatively look at doing this. But the more I see about the virus and the vaccine or lack of vaccine and some of the data that came out this morning about the mutations of the virus, the new variants, it is not encouraging. And even if the VAX situation had been handled correctly, and it was botched again from the beginning, if it had been handled correctly, and you, I still think we're a year away from any sort of normalcy. And, I've, and what, the reason I'm bringing this up is I have friends who are incredibly entitled, and they feel they've been personally infringed upon is their rights to travel during the pandemic. And they come up with every kind of cockamamie excuse for traveling to because they just are spoiled and they want to travel and then they brag about the travel. And it, to me, that's incredibly selfish. It's one of the reasons why we're still in the situation we're in was people just refuse to lock down. They refuse to do the right thing. They refuse to think of the collective instead of themselves. So I look at 2020 and I'm like, I think this is highly unlikely because even if we had handled the situation here with the vax, which we didn't. The rest of the world has to get vaccinated as well, and then you need time for this to build up in the community, and now we know there's a shortage of these things. We've got another vax coming from Johnson & Johnson, which looks promising, but still, we're a long way away. Here in New Mexico, I signed up for the vax. It looks like I'm, I'm summer at the, at the earliest, so I'm still three, four months out from getting this vaccination. Also, by the way, when on the forum, it said, do you have any kind of chronic illness? And I put Lyme disease. I'm very curious what happens with that. My guess is it will be totally ignored. 
um, which is basically like most everything else uh, having to deal with Lyme disease. But what do you think about travel in 2020? Or I'm sorry, 2021. Or are we talking, I'm thinking more likely now it's 2022, that things are going to be able to like get back on the road. Having said that, I know that there's photo workshops happening all over the world right now. How that's possible uh, legally and how that's possible getting people to sign forms. I guess you just have a ton of legal forms that people have to sign saying if you get COVID, um, you're on your own. Or do you have a vaccination certificate or whatever? But it's happening. I would be a little hesitant to do that right now, um, just based on what I know. Now, the, the finding that came out this morning was kind of alarming, which was about the South African variant destroying the antibody resistance. So if you've had COVID and you get this new variant, it, the, the variant just takes your, your antibody resistance and blasts it off the face of the earth. That's not a good sign. And now we've got at least three variants. The virus is mutating, which is what they do. And so I think we have to reestablish our level of patience because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that things are not going to be back to normal travel-wise for quite some time. Tell me what you think, because I don't really know. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, but realistic. Okay, point number six is about a little bicycle information here. And I have another question for you, which is I have a, my bicycle helmet is a Bell, um, also the same brand that I used to use on my motorcycle. Going back to the time I was in first grade and I had a two-speed Honda 50 with white plastic fenders. Uh, that was my first helmet. No visor. I was going old school. Now I have a black Bell helmet. I've had this thing for probably 10 years at least. I'm thinking maybe even longer, maybe 12 years. Now I've crashed a couple times on my bike, but my and, and, and I think three times I've crashed wearing this helmet. Two on tarmac, one on dirt. Oddly enough, the dirt was the worst wreck and the hardest hit, and my head did hit the ground. And thank God I had a helmet on, because what I landed on, had I not been wearing a helmet, I don't think I'd be sitting here right now, because I would certainly have, I don't, I don't know if it would have fractured my skull, but it would have certainly implanted, I would have huge gouges in my head um, that I don't know if would have ever healed correctly because it was I landed on rock basically jagged rock now luckily my low back my left kidney was what hit the ground first so my head wasn't the first thing if I had hit the ground with my head first on that where I landed it would have probably been lights out but I landed on my kidney I peed blood for like three or four days and um and now I'm fine <laughs> but anyway do I need a new helmet and if I need a new helmet, what the hell do I buy? Because helmets now, you don't ever do a Google search for anything because it's like, here's 4,000 models of helmet. And there's like, you know, uh, the Sunfire 1, Sunfire 2, Sunfire 3, Sunfire 4. And then you're like, you have to compare them all. And they're like, the strap is one millimeter narrower on the Sunflower 3 over the Sunflower 4. Sunfire, Sunflower, whatever. You get the point. So tell me, what do I need? The POC helmets, is it, is it a, another Bell uh, I don't even know what else is out there. Help me. The other thing I want to say is I switched up my the tires on my my bike to 2.2 Connie Race Kings, which so far have been good. I have about 200 miles on them right now, and they've been really fun. To go back to a 2.2-inch tire, that width is so stable off-road and on the dirt and on the hard-packed trails. It's so much fun because even with 40 centimeters, my gravel tires, a lot of the dirt I was riding on, you really had to pay attention in fact, I don't think I would have crashed this last crash on dirt. I don't think I would have crashed if I had my two twos on. I had 40s on, and that's part of the reason why I crashed is that front tire dug in. 
because it was too narrow for how soft the ground was. It dug and spun, and that's what sort of set me in motion. And also, I didn't have enough speed going, so it was, my, it was partially my fault as well. Probably all my fault. But anyway, I put the tutus on, and I put slime tubes in them, because out here, there's so many cactus and gra sharp gravel and everything. But one of the slime tubes I got was, was defective, because the second I put it on, the front wheel had this wobble to it. And it wasn't a side-to-side -side wobble. It was a top-to-bottom wobble. It was like whoop, 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 whoop. And the front tire would bounce on, on, on tarmac. It was so dramatically out of round. So I took the tire off three times, reseated it, put it on, did not work. And then finally that slime tube just exploded. I was in the other room in the other side of the house and I heard my, my front tire explode in the office. My bike's in my office, by the way. And it was like, and blew out with, I wasn't even on the bike. No one was on it. It was inside. And so the tube was defective. I took it out, put a regular tube in. It's fine. The tire's fine. But I also ordered tubalitos. And tubalitos are these really cool bright orange uh, tubes that are two thirds lighter than a, than a regular tube. They're much more puncture resistant and they are really slick looking. They're expensive, but they, tubes for me last forever because I have patch kits and I just keep patching them and patching them and patching them. But I was very curious about tubalitos, if anybody out there is running these, they're tiny. They pack up very, very, very small. They're not made out of the same rubber material that a regular tube is. They're made out of some plastic of some sort. Very slick. Can't wait. They should be here in the next few days. And they are also way lighter than the slime tubes because if these are two-thirds lighter than a regular tube, the slime tubes are exponentially heavier than a regular tube. They weigh a ton. So with all the packs and everything on my bike, I'm looking forward to lightening whatever, whatever little bits I can lighten actually make a big difference, especially when you're on anything over 50 miles, uh, especially mixed terrain at elevation, weight makes a huge difference, how much water you're carrying, all that stuff. So if I can save some weight, add some water, uh, I'm, I'm ahead of the game. So tell me about the helmets and tell me if you're running two Bolitos. Okay. Uh, this is a really important point. I don't know if this is six or seven, but I, I, I hope this hits people in the right way. And hang on, I'm going to take a sip, tip, sip of my smoothie. Man, I make the best smoothie in the world. I am bragging. <sighs> okay. Had dinner with a friend the other night. He, uh, he grew up kind of country, a little bit like me. And... We were talking, we're having dinner, and distanced <clears throat> safely, by the way. And this is very rare. I have not done this in months and months and months, and I have no intention of doing it anytime soon. But it was outside. We were distanced, you know, the whole thing. And we were talking about family members, and he came from a family that was, I guess you could say, not maybe super international or worldly or whatever, kind of, kind of a little bit like mine. And... But he had, he had an aunt, and the aunt had traveled, and the aunt looked at the world in a different way than anyone else in his family. And the aunt showed him that there was a greater outside world and completely changed his life because once he had discovered that his aunt had traveled, and she'd been to like North Africa and traveled all over, he was like, oh my God, there's someone in the family that's out there. And that has done this, that's seen the outside greater world and really impacted him all, all through his adult life until she finally passed away. And it reminded me that I had somebody in my family as well. It was my cousin. And my cousin, when I was a little boy <clears throat> in Indiana, we lived in the country, and my cousin would come from time to time and visit. And I knew that my cousin was different 
by how the other adults acted around him. He was unlike anyone I had ever seen. He also nicknamed me DR, which are my first two initials. He still calls me that today. And my cousin was a legit adventurer. He, he sailed a, a kayak with a sail mount from the top of the Ohio River to Central America by, with his girlfriend. And I talked to him about this recently, probably within the last year. And he goes, yeah, we had the kayak. I had a, I had a sleeping pad and a sleeping bag. Um, no maps, no nothing. He goes, I don't like to plan too much. We just took off and left. And then a year something, year and a half later, they ended up in Honduras. They got caught in a hurricane, this whole thing. But unbelievable adventure. He got written up in Geographic at the time, not in like the mainstream mag, but in some Geographic publication. And then he sailed that same collapsible kayak up the Amazon River by himself. He's been all through remote islands in the Caribbean. Uh, He's a legit adventurer. But when he would come to our house, the other adults looked at him as if he was like, uh, not, I don't want to say a freak, it was like a, a messiah. He had broken the bounds of what the standard of American living was about. He turned his back on wealth. His father was ready to turn him over the business, the family business, which was a very profitable family business. And he said, no, I don't want to go down that route. I want to spend my life out in the world. He would save every penny. And then he would disappear for years at a time on these expeditions. And I, as a kid, he would come, and my parents had, they, we had Encyclopedia Britannica, but then we had this secondary set that were like encyclopedias, but they were about the natural world, and they covered the entire planet. And I would pore over these as a kid, and just I was just mesmerized by everything that was in these books. And when, when my cousin would come, I would open any of these books to any location, and no matter what I talked about, he knew about it. He knew where it was. He knew all the details. And I was like, oh my God, he is an an encyclopedia of the natural world. And he's still out there. And he's still now disappearing for weeks at a time into the mountains, solo backpacking adventures. Great, incredible guy. But these family members are are cherished objects. These are are gems because they are the ones that keep us from grooving into a channel. They're the ones that skip the needle out of the track on the album and make that shrieking sound, and everyone stops and looks around and goes, what just happened? And they are so essential to us as a species that we have to, the more more and more, the crazy part about the world today and the online world is how much conformity it has brought to our society. And the creative industry, oddly enough, is at the top of the list in terms of conformity. It's one of the most astounding things of the last 10 years of my life, uh, working as a blurb person is to travel the world and see the amount of conformity happening in the in the professional world, in the creative space, photography in particular. You would think like we're supposed to be the most creative people on the planet, and there's so many people doing exactly what they've seen someone else do because again, the sh- the the tide of the industry and how professional stuff is completed has changed, and people are falling into this idea of whatever's popular and has already been done, I'm going to tag onto that because I want to get on those coattails instead of saying, like I said earlier, I'm going to drop out for a year and sail up the Amazon and kind of figure out who I am as a human being and then come back and maybe offer something unique. So anyway, I tip my hat to those family members who are, who are leading the way. Okay. Um, What was I going to say here? This is the last, the last point. Um, and it kind of rehashes a little bit 
about what we were talking about. And this is, it's another social media thing that happened to me this week that I was like, Jesus, I should talk about this. But now that I look at it, it's kind of so depressing. I don't want to talk about it because here's the thing. You guys all know, and some of you are still playing the game. And so once you've convinced yourself that you're going to play the game, there's nothing I can say to get you out because I see it and hear it every single day of friends saying, oh, I'm only on it for one thing. Oh, I only do this. Oh, I'm only going to use it for this. Oh, I only use it for that. And then two seconds after looking at the feed, you're like, no, they're not doing that. Um, It's just, uh, I can't even, it's something I've had to talk about. And and this was a specific thing that happened again. Someone reached out specifically and said, hey, what about this, this, and this? And I thought, oh no, I have to re-explain this. um, And I don't really want to re-explain it. So I think it's not a good point to to end on, uh, let me think about what else I have to end on. If there's, if there's anything, I did get out to fly the drone this week. And I guess we'll end with a little talk about the drone. The drone is uh, a means to an end. I know that every hipster with a van on the planet has a drone. Pretty much everyone without a van has a drone. And the drone has been interesting because it has opened up I look at the drone, one, I, I did it because I wanted to learn a new skill, and flying the drone is definitely a skill, and I'm getting better at it, uh, and I'm flying it a lot more often now because I'm specifically making time to go do it, and it, mine is tiny. It's a little mosquito, and so it can't be windy, and you know you have to be very careful about how and where you fly this thing, but I wanted to start looking at water because we are in a massive drought in New Mexico. The Southwest in general has been in basically a very long drought cycle. Two or three years ago, we had a pretty wet year, but for the most part, that's been an anomaly. The The length of the drought and the severity of the drought and the frequencies of the drought are what's changing. The world has always gone through drought cycles, so don't think this is something new. But people who want to discredit the changes that are happening now discredit things about the frequency of drought, the duration, and the severity. And that is what's changed. For example, I mentioned earlier when I was a kid in Wyoming, we had snow in the middle of the summer. We had, we had like six inches of snow in July. That was not out of, out of the ordinary because our house was at 8,000 feet and it sat at the base of a mountain range. And the storms, the cold fronts would come out of the mountains and slam into that hot air off the plains, and you would get these really violent thunderstorms and gully washers, and they were fantastic. And during the summers, we would have tons of rain. Every afternoon, it would rain. And then sometimes we'd have snow, and you'd have like 30-degree temperatures and snow in July. Well, those winters and that moisture is gone. And when I was a kid, think about this. When I was a kid, I remember driving in a pickup truck through... um, a port of basically eastern eastern Wyoming with a rancher and he pointed up to a snow-covered mountain range and said that's my future and I was like what and I'm a, like a little kid I have no idea what's going on I could barely dress myself and he said that's our future right there and I go what are you talking about and he goes selling water to California that's going to be the future that was when I was a kid so the the moisture of past is gone like the last two summers in New Mexico we've had no monsoons We had three rain events all summer here in New Mexico, and they were tiny. They really weren't even enough to to register. So we had basically no monsoonal moisture during the season, and we've had very, very little snow this winter at all. 
They've already told the farmers south of Elephant Butte they're going to have zero water allocation for this year, which is not good. That's where a lot of the hatch chili and the chilies come from. And so uh, this is bad. And I wanted to just start to go out and film water because I have a sinking suspicion that this footage and these still photographs at some point are going to have relevance. Because right now, a lot of America doesn't understand that we're in a drought. You know, I mentioned drought, and a lot of people are like, what? What are you talking about? No, I'm not. Everything's fine. I turn on my faucet, and the water comes out. So I was like, how the heck do I do the water thing? I can't really do it from the shore. I don't have a boat. I am going to buy a collapsible kayak. Not a kayak, a canoe, by the way, which is I think is called My Canoe. So if you're interested in those or you have one or you have any feedback, I know it's not a rigid canoe, but I have no way of carrying a rigid canoe in the van. I am not going to strap it to the roof of the van or the side of the van or haul it in a trailer. I'm not going to. And the My Canoe folds up into like a suitcase size thing. It's about 50 pounds. It, it unfolds and folds like in five minutes. So it's very cool looking. I'm going to get a paddle, uh, a rowing rig for it so I can go out by myself and really make time, even if it's in, even if it's windy. So I was like, how do I do this? And the drone was the natural way of doing this. And so this past weekend, I went out and to a, a massive lake here in New Mexico, which I'd never been to. And man, it was depressing. Um, they closed all of the boat ramps this weekend now for all boat traffic because the water's so low. It is one of the biggest lakes, if not the biggest lake, lake in the state, and it was astoundingly low. I mean, crazy. And the easiest way to illustrate that was the drone. And so I got out there, and I couldn't believe it. There was no wind. And normally, eastern New Mexico, you're going to get a ton of wind. And over the past week, really from California all the way to Texas, there's been a massive wind event that's been happening, a two funnels between um, high-pressure systems and just massive amounts of wind coming through here. And so I, I just lucked out, got out there, sent the drone up, and it is astounding. And it's a very, very easy read for people who don't, really understand how bad the situation is. And so um, that's what I'm doing with the drone. And it's been fantastic. It's, uh, I, I am, like I said, adding a new skill, adding something to a pro specific to a project that I could not have done without the drone, like standing on the edge of the lake and photographing, you do not get the idea. It's almost impossible to see other than the rings on the rock that there is a drop in the water, but man, you get that drone up and the van is parked in what should be the bottom of the lake. And there is just an expanse that goes on and on and on behind the van as I get further and further inland. And there's no, you know, you're just thinking, oh my God. And then finally you come to picnic tables that are a half a mile from the shoreline. All of the docks and all of the stairways at the old marinas and yacht clubs, they're all abandoned because they're a hundred feet above where the waterline is. It's just astounding. I also fished, caught nothing, zero strikes. I realized that from the shoreline, it's so shallow, so far out, it's futile, but it's always fun to, to wet a line and see what you can come up with. And that lake does have walleye and smallmouth and all kinds of stuff that I would like to, uh, to fish because walleye is the best eating fish in my opinion, that I've ever had. So I'm, I'm game to get some of those at some point. But anyway, that is the podcast for this week. I wish I could end with some glorious story, but I am out of time. I got to get out of here. I got to pack the van. I got to get my stuff ready and move on. Uh, I think Uncle Joe's getting sworn in right now, uh, as far as I know. And uh, I wish, I hope everyone is, is doing okay this week. And um, don't sweat it. Let's just get back to work and kick ass. And whatever it is you do, do it to the best of your ability.